Happy Monday, Liberty lovers. And before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about the easiest way you can support this program. That is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride, supporting us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. In exchange, you get access to tons of bonus audio content, audio and video content, including live streams that we do to our super secret private Pride Facebook group. You get bonus shows like Conspiracy Corner, Good Morning Fuckhead from Brian McWilliams every single day during the week, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests and so much more uh, as well as a discount a 15% discount on all of our merchandise over at the Lions of Liberty store. We have our Taxation is Death t-shirt. We have our Tax On, Tax Off t-shirt, so much more. And now for a very limited time, we have just a few spots left in our very special private session of Vin Armani's Bitcoin Mystery School. This is available only to Lions of Liberty Pride members, and you get over 30% off the price of this class. That's right, over 30% off. It's something like uh, close to $75 worth of savings, and it only costs five bucks to join the Pride Kids. So uh, if you can't see the value there, and there may be no hope for you. So check that all out over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. and live All right, guys, with me today, he is a cognitive scientist who's been very outspoken about everything going on with coronavirus, lockdowns, etc. I first encountered him on Twitter. I'm very pleased to welcome him here today. His name is Mark Changizi. Mark, are you ready to roar? Yeah, I've been... I've been roaring since uh, 2020 of last March. All right. Well, roaring you certainly have been, I would say. And um, just before we get into everything that's been going on with the lockdowns, with with COVID, I want to just learn a little bit more about your background and and where you're coming from. So, you know, a lot of people might hear this term. I mentioned that you're a cognitive scientist and maybe they think it has something to do with science of the brain or the mind, but don't really know what that means. So maybe you could just give me a little of your background on how you got into cognitive science and, and kind of just quickly define what that really is for the layman out there. I find it hard to describe myself in a, in a, in a couple of words. Um, so just using cognitive scientists is, is what, what I do. But, you know, as, an, as a high school student, my aim was to answer the questions to the universe. That was my essay, you know, ever since I was sixth grade and my essay to college was to go and do physics and math undergrad, which is what I did. And my goal was to do physics, a PhD in math, which I did so that I could go back into the neurosciences and cognitive sciences and, and study, you know, sort of really deep questions about brains and minds and and you know really deep stuff so i've been within cognitive science and uh evolutionary biology and why societies are structured the way they are why your brain is structured a lot of the questions are why you're pruny when wet these are all design questions they are um more about why we are designed to be the way we are rather than the billiard ball mechanisms that uh undergird them and so that's usually what motivates me more so uh, I, I'm more of a theorist uh, uh, in general. Why do your hands get pruny when wet? Well, the short story is, is uh, they're rain treads. Um, they, uh, uh, for a long time, they thought that they just get wet and some accidental side effect of osmosis, um, they wrinkle up, which itself doesn't make any sense because when you when something does absorb like in a sponge, if things get more swelled, they don't get wrinkly, they get swelled up in the opposite of wrinkling. Um, it turns out from the 1930s, they've even known, uh, surgeons knew that if a patient came in after getting, let's say, in a car accident, and they're unresponsive and you want to know, and there's some arm damage and you want to, okay, is the arm still uh, have, is the nerve intact or not? Someone had figured out if you stick their finger in warm water and they fail to uh, uh, wrinkle pruning up, then you know that there's the sympathetic nerve has been cut. So it was a simple test for them to just, so I said, holy crap, even as of 2000, everybody's thinking 2005, 2010, thinking that there's some off local os- osmotic mechanism. But in fact, it's neurally mediated. And so uh, uh, back in 2010-ish or whatever, we, 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 the, the idea occurred to a student and myself that maybe these are rain treads. In fact, when you work at mathematically, what are the optimal rain treads given the kind of topography and the kind of squeezing that we do, you can actually work out that they should have exactly the peculiar kinds of uh, uh, channel shapes that they in fact have. 
So they're just rain treads that appear when things are wet. And otherwise, they're smooth race car drive cars, you know, race cars don't drive on wet surfaces. So they should be flat and smooth. That, that's the maximum. You only want rain treads when it's actually raining. Of course, our cars are, you know, have just rain treads all the time because we don't want to switch them out, but our, our fingers do. That's absolutely fascinating. So basically our, our hands just adapt to a wet environment so we could like sort of better maneuver the environment around us just specifically during that wet time. Right. Well, and we, we do do that for shoes, of course, for all of us right. in our houses we have shoes that are designed that are water environments and the rest of the time we wear different kinds of shoes. Ah, fascinating. So, all right. So why don't you take us back to uh, when you told me you kind of started roaring last year, March of 2020. Uh, what were your first thoughts about what you saw uh, about the panic around coronavirus? Uh, what was your first indication that this was going to be a lot different than uh, many of the other uh, you know, pandemics we've seen over the past years, whether it's H1N1, the swine flu or what have you? I mean, at the time I was traveling in, in, in Turkey and, um, and my wife was about to travel back half Iran and my wife's from Iran and things started to go downhill around early March. And so she couldn't travel to Iran anymore. And I, and I wasn't really paying too much attention to it until I got back some, some, sometime in early March, but it was, it was clear to me, um, even as Mark, my first tweets on the matter were March 10th, that every single time that it was mentioned, it was always mentioned the deadly coronavirus and everything, everything was being prefaced with it being so overly, in an overly dramatic way. And it was the same words coming from every direction that you could hear. All the journalists, which are always being, you know, exaggerating. Every politician was saying, all the academics that I know, every single person on Twitter. So when everybody's saying that same one thing, you know, my antennae just start buzzing and saying that something is wrong, something is wrong. So I quickly started to look around at the actual data and the actual data that was already there from China and from Italy and from uh, the Princess Cruz, everything showed that the uh, infection fatality rate was um, uh, quite low in, in, in the realm of flu. And everybody at the time was quoting the, the case fatality rate, which at the time none of us knew these terms, but case fatality rate re refers to the probability of dying for those who show up sick at the hospital. And those numbers, depending on the country, they varied from sometimes 15% down to 0.5% depending on the country. And they're hugely variable just because there's systematic variations from country to country. But people are looking at some of these 5% numbers and thinking, okay, I have a 5% chance of dying. It's like, that's totally missing the point. No, there's so many unmeasured, you know, folks that are actually getting it and no one shows up at the hospital. So this is, could be a hundred, sometimes 500 times lower if you have any intuitions for the kind, you know, for just empirical intuitions for how these things work. But instead, sure. they just glommed onto the 5%. And uh, yeah, if you're only if you're only sampling from the people that, that get so sick that they go to the hospital, I mean, that's a very small sample size, because I think all of us have gotten sick or gotten some kind of flu. But I think I mean, I've never gone to the hospital with a sickness or a flu. I mean, you'd have to get really, really, really bad shape for me to even consider going to the hospital in that circumstance. So you really are choosing from. A yeah. And you, that seems so obvious. But in fact, when I would just say this in March, 10, March 11, people would say, no, think about all of the other people that are out there. It, surely we're underestimating the number of deaths because there's probably all these other, and they came up with ways to suggest that the 5%, you know, plus or minus was even low. And that's actually surely much higher because once they're, once they became this afraid and heard from this, so many different in, in supposedly independent sources that they trusted and had high reputation as, as, as far as they were concerned, they just believed to 100% that this was a deadly 10%-ish kind of virus. And there was no no turning that off um, uh, from it's just stuck in the in the brains of of society as a whole in some sense. And that's what's really most fascinating about this to me is that there's a certain segment of society when you say it, it couldn't be turned off um, for for a decent number of people out there. It seems that it still has not been turned off even now when we have the data, even when certain institutions are starting to admit that the data is nowhere near as bad as it, as it, you know, people were panicking about early on. There's a segment of society that is still in March 2020, still in that panic mode. What why can't that be turned off for for a certain number of people? And I, and I would you know, I know that you weren't saying in a, in a technical sense, I would say the panic mode to the extent that you want to call it more like a panic was probably in early March. And after that, these their probabilities are set. Everybody's quite rational. And, and they, in fact, are rational because once you have prior, prior prob priors refers to prior, prior probabilities. Your probabilities on this being an altogether new kind of virus. Being a virus is spread asymptomatically, unlike all of the other viruses, which it has all of these unique features being an altogether new sort of virus. Once you have that and the prior probability, your new probability of that is like point, you know, like 99.9%, .9%, then you on behave rationally. 
new information. You can actually modify your probability distribution with new information as a rational person would, except that you happen to have a prior that's so biased in the wrong direction that it can take or centuries to get back into the norm. So it's often the case that people are quite rational after this, these kinds of events have happened because everything that they're doing, they're actually modulating their, their preconceptions on the basis of new data, just as you would. It's just that their priors got so uh, fucked up, so pushed so far. So people really after that can be, be, be quite rational. In fact, they never really were irrational. The only sense in which they got those bad priors or these bad ways of thinking, these wrong assumptions, was also because of the way that we all come to the assumptions that we believe. Even as a scientist, 99.999% of what I believe is because some high reputation folks in my reputation community, which includes journalists, includes scientists, includes just friends I, at a bar who confidently told me, and I kind of, so I believe it, right? Those are the stuff we all believe. And there's probably, you know, two dozen things that I've worked on in my own research, and I actually did statistical, you know, P's tests and actually can say that I know in a very different kind of way than I know by virtue of our reputation networks, right? That's just rare, and that's only because I'm a scientist, and that's still like almost nothing compared to what I actually believe. The believe things is by sitting within a network, a reputation network of all these folks around us and hearing people say things with certain levels of confidence that they're putting behind it, which is putting something at stake because they could get humiliated later. And once you, if those that are higher reputation are the folks that you're likely to believe to the extent that they're confident about it. So that's what went wrong and modified everybody's priors was because somehow, you know, fear is, has a positive feedback loop of fear. If I'm afraid, if I'm thirsty and I go, dude, Mark, I'm really thirsty. You don't say, oh, well, now I'm thirsty. Thanks. Right. And then because then if you get thirsty, you know, it doesn't work like that. But for perception of fear, rather uh, as opposed to perception of thirst or feeling, you know, if I say I'm, a, I'm really frightened and you know, you may not see what I see, but you can just get frightened by virtue of the fact that you see that I'm frightened. And my own fright, of course, can just make me frightened. As I'm walking back to the car and I hear some, I go, holy, what is that? And then I'm more frightened. And then, I'm, you know, it, it starts to build on itself. And so all of these things at the beginning, these fear of a pandemic became a positive feedback loop between all the individuals and journalists and politicians and academics and people. And it just built on itself. And that, that kind of dynamic process, I think, happened in early March, specifically around March 8, 9, 10. It just fulminated it. And then, and then once it was there, it was very hard to turn off. Is that positive feedback loop of fear that you mentioned? Is that is that kind of like a biological evolutionary thing, wherein you know if we're you know in our in our ancient tribe or what have you, and someone starts panicking, well then I'm going to see them and, and assume that someone in my tribe is panicking for a good reason. So then I'm going to start panicking, and other people around me are, are going to start panicking. Is that is that really like go back to just getting the tribe in in panic mode, in fight or flight mode, so it can deal with whatever threat is coming up? Yeah. So these are. I mean, every single thing that we have, all of our instincts, all of our behaviors are all, you know, all ancient instincts uh, from none of these things are designed for modern societies Uh, to the extent that we're modern people who take ourselves to be, as I described it, human 2.0s rather than our sort of human 1.0. It's because aspects of culture have culturally evolved to fit our ancient brains. And so one of my research directions just to the reason that we can read at all is not because we ever evolved to write. Most of us have, you know, great grandfathers and great grandmothers who didn't read at all. We're illiterate. There's not been enough time to evolve to read. We evolved. We came to read because cult- cultural evolution over time shaped writing to look like nature. Writing, one of my writing, the shapes of letters actually look like the contour conglomerations that happen in natural scenes over time. These, the world around us, the culture around us, society itself to harness our ancient instincts and uh you know many you know so it's writing and speech and the arts as well as society that this couch is you know nice fit on my butt right these things are all highly designed for us help for my parrot downstairs right Mm. it's not going to work for all of these things are shaped around us to turn us highly capable of creatures who still have all these ancient instincts and unfortunately some of the ways right now that social media is structured including, you know, they have some structures that are nice and sort of capture the kinds of social dynamics that would have happened in a small tribe of, you know, whatever, 100 to 1,000 people. But, you know, because it's just that it's scaled up by several orders of magnitude. And they're not all correct. Like, there's a lot of things that are wrong about social networks. In real life, you and me, I would be impressing to you. And half of the communication that we're doing, much more than half, nearly all of it evolutionarily, would have been the emotional expressions themselves. And online, that's highly uh, handicapped um, because you can't do these emotional expressions and, and emotionally expressing is how you put things at stake. And I say, you have no idea what you're talking about, Mark. If you had any idea who I am, now I've just been really douchebaggy, right? 
And if the by virtue of that, if it turns out down later in the conversation, because oh, actually he was right, or, I, or we call like a like a call on poker, and then later someone else comes and says, "Yeah, Mark, Mark was wrong. Me, Mark uh, was wrong." Then I lose social capital. All of these sorts of things are betting games between individuals that keep us in line because other, we're, we're having to put you know potentially humiliate. We are overly confident about it, and all of these things don't work well. On despite attempts to have likes and then Facebook, they have little emotional symbols. It's not re remotely the full range of emotional expressions that allow it to these sort of negotiations, social negotiations to do. It's the failure of social networks right now to harness us the way they someday might if they're done well. And it's the fact that they were spread over the entire earth rather than just, you know, just Iran getting messed up or just China getting messed up from the cultural roof. Now these sort of echo chamber mass hysterias just spread horizontally everywhere. And this is the first time I, I don't think these are unique, these sorts of mass hysterias. I think they're behind tyranny, evil dictators, rose, you know, surfed on a, on a, on a bed of these, these hysterias. They didn't just force us, you know, it, it's a common, these complex emergent properties happen in, even in those cases, but this is the first time I went worldwide and there was really nowhere to run. And that's what makes it really frightening. Is that one reason it's so it's so common to see? Uh, I don't know, like you like you kind of mentioned, like such douchebaggery, I guess you might say, on on like social media and Twitter, because we don't have that same level of putting our reputations at stake. Uh, obviously, people can have sock accounts and anonymous accounts, in which case there really is is no uh, reputation at stake. But even when our real names are out there, um, we're still more anonymous than we would be if we were sitting in front of each other, or sitting around the campfire, or we're living in the same community together. Is that why? people can seem to act so, so differently on social media than they ever would in real life. Yeah, and I, I think it, at first glance, one might think it has something to do with an, an anonymity. And I, I don't think anonymity has as much to, to explain in this case as you might think. Because a lot of the folks that you know that you actually respect on Twitter do have an anonymity. They've got 500,000 followers or 200, right. whatever. They've got a lot. They are effectively not anonymous. They do not want to lose that account. They've built a huge reputation by virtue of huge wealth, and they care about it in general. And, and, and so uh, anonymity doesn't mean that they're always douchebaggy. And in real life, nearly everybody that you meet, sure, they've got a name, but you never meet the know the name of the barrister, you know, whatever, the, the coffee barista or whatever. You don't know their names. They're for all, you know, intents and purposes, they're effectively anonymous, you know, but you're nice and they're nice to you. All of these sort of anonymous sort of interactions that we're going through, uh, we're, we're quite nice to each other in general. But what's missing online is, I think, the emotional expressiveness that happens in real life with anonymous people. We're emotional expressing. It's mediating our behavior and allowing billions of little transactions and interactions happen nicely and smoothly without any social capital having to be transferred at all because no one's being douchebaggy to one another. So online, I think it's a failure of emotional expression. And the next book is called Face Off. And it's about the origins of the last 10 years I've been working with my colleague, Tim Barber, on first first principles derivation and understanding a sort of grand unifying theory of what emotional expressions are, deriving the space of emotional expressions we have, how they in fact undergird an, a, a poker game that humans are always playing with one another, and how emotional expressions correspond to bets of social capital, or in some cases, unbets. I might be conciliatory and I go, oh, actually, you were right, I'm wrong. And I'm basically taking, you know, I'm pocketing some social capital that I just bet, sort of backing down understanding these dynamics in a very mathematical, rigorous kind of way that simultaneously explains all of these sorts of uh, uh, communications that people naturally do. Well, speaking of like social expression there, I mean, uh, and, and we'll get it more into lockdowns and that, that sort of thing in a bit, because that that is like the I think the primary uh, thing that a lot of people in this circle, the libertarian circles here bring up are the lockdowns, understandably so, because it's just a, a humongous violation of rights. But one thing I'm, I'm just so concerned about is the mask culture, not even the mandates as much as the culture that's coming about, because uh, because of that lack of uh, being able to see emotional expression when you can't see the smile on some someone's face or, or read just, you know, read their lips. Even I, I notice even just in my daily communications, especially out here in California, where pretty much everyone has a mask still at all times. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to understand what people are saying. I, I'm realizing often like how much of my communication in the past has actually maybe been through seeing people's expressions and seeing people's lips, because even if I'm sort of hearing what they're saying, I'm, I'm not getting that same level of commu communication. And I, I just, I wonder how that is going to affect society at large, especially with the type of people that are going to continue just masking their children or sending their kids to school or keeping their kids in groups of, of an, always wearing masks. What kind of effect do you see this having on human beings and how they interact with each other? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
almost nobody has a full appreciation for what their emotional expressions do for them. And that's because they come so natural and they're so easy and you don't have to think about them. Um, and, and all of the brilliant stuff that we do is all stuff that doesn't feel like it's brilliant. Um, chess, the brilliant chess players, the reason chess is sort of interesting is because we're not naturally able to do chess. It feels like a lot of work to do chess, but we do a billion a billion things that are a billion times more interesting and powerful computationally than chess, every moment of our, our waking lives that feel like nothing, right? And so none of us value those things. And our ability to emotionally express is exactly one of those. It's, it, it's exactly how all the social animals dealt with the world with all of these other smart social animals so that you can, those are the most important pieces of furniture because they're the ones that can potentially kill you or the ones that you need to mate with. And they're constantly at, at, at odds with one another. You cover over your facial expressions, you've dampened, you know, 85, 90%. Of you. You've got a little bit of intonation of the voice, a little bit of gestures that are left, but you've otherwise, uh, uh, and so the douchebaggery that happens online, it's not because of anonymity, it's because of the lack of emotional expressions. You should expect a push toward, you know, I don't, I don't have any measurements. It'd be nice to actually measure how, how, the extent to which that kind of behavior goes up in societies that are fully wearing or, or much more often wearing these sorts of things. The other side of this is that once it starts, it can be very hard to turn off because if, you know, and I did a science moment, you know, where, where I was just almost naked in the video and, and just showing, of course, you can't be naked on a video. Once it's a taboo to be naked, it, of course, at the beach, it would have been fine. But I was on, on video in a sort of professional setting. Taboo, really context sensitive. So we all, even if you hate masks, I feel naked if I'm at the hostess stand without a mask, even though I'm totally against it. Once you're sitting in your seat, you're fine. You can take it off. So these are very contextual. People have this notion that the face is now a private part, like your butt. You feel like your butt is hanging out when your face is hanging out. That's really dangerous because those sorts of taboos, private part kinds of stuff, stick forever. They can very often stick forever, especially for the younger generation, which is much more, uh, you know, uh, in cities right now, women are, you know, they won lawsuits in various cities that they can go topless. Now, you know, even in downtown Columbus, they can go topless. The only time you'll ever see a woman topless is on, you know, once every couple of years, there'll be some kind of demonstration and there'll be like probably three ladies that are topless for demonstration. Effectively, no one's going topless. And so as much they, as they, they support- do it down here at Venice Beach, about once every couple of years, they have the yeah. topless parade. And then that, that, that's the last time you see it. So they, yeah. they go parade for this right that they don't even try to actually use in real yeah. life. And, it's, and it, whether it's a good idea or not a good idea, it's in, too, in some sense too late. You know, they, they grew up at already a time where it's just hard to get over that, even though they feel like they ought to be allowed it's it's going to be hard for most of them to really do that because it's just stuck in their brain. So I feel like those very same people would now parade topless, but with the mask on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so maybe a win-win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah, so that's a danger. Uh, uh, so the masks. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been focusing on my science moment videos, but not. I mean, I, I've been talking about the cardiovascular issues and falls. Uh, falls is an underappreciated thing that I that's very few people are talking about since the beginning. People don't realize that you even see actually one of the reasons you can titrate your own emotional expressions on your face, by the way, so well is because you see your own face. I see myself right now in this video. I'm talking to you, but in the corner, of course, it's got this little image of me. So I get to see myself. I'm not looking at myself for my emotional expressions in this case, but I just want to make sure I'm on camera. I'm not like just on the side or my head popping up from the bottom. Same thing happens. How is it that in all of our brilliant behaviors that we do, is because we see our own body and our visual field. We get the visual feedback to reach out. This is why we actually have two eyes. All animals have one eye on one side of the head and another eye on the other side of the head because it gives your muzzle, like most animals, our hand is their muzzle. I, if I only had one eye and I want to put my hand someplace, well, now my muzzle blocks my view of everything, right? And so the, the problem is like, well, how, where do I put a hand? Well, the, one answer is put one, an eye on either side of the muzzle. This way, my left eye can see the left side of the muzzle. My right eye can see the right side of the muzzle. And whatever's my, you know, whatever my left eye can't see, my right eye sees it. So you end up with a view of everything and you get this God's eye view of your hand from both sides, which is like perfect, right? And the same thing happens. So visual movement is all kinds of animals. And it even, it even is what lets you even see your own main facial expressions. In the very bottom of your visual field, in the far, far periphery, you see your cheeks. And you see when you smile, they go up and down. You're not really seeing them per se, but they, they delimit, they sh- they're the limitations of your visual field. And you feel the differences that go up and down. And your eyebrows, you can see them in the limits of your visual field. You don't see them, but you, you know, like you, you're, uh, uh, your brain can tell that they're going up and down. So you can tell as your emotional expressions change how the shape of it is going. It's like you have a first-person perspective view as if you're getting the feedback on an iPhone of your own view. And you need that. Otherwise, I can't titrate my emotional expressions 
online in real time to make sure they're appropriate for my reactions of what I want to do to you. And the reason you can, you know, one way you know that you can see your own cheeks is why football players put black on their cheeks. They put black because that prevents as much light from reflecting from their cheeks into their eyes. And it's because it really is going into their eyes, even though they're not conscious because the things in that far of your periphery are not consciously aware. Well, the same thing happens. So this is going for emotional expressions, but sort of segueing into uh, falls. When you're wearing a mask, you're blocking your lower visual field and you can't see your feet anymore. You can't see the things that are approaching the optic flow that's coming towards your feet. And the number of falls every year is 600, you know, on the order of 600,000 worldwide, the deaths from is 600,000 plus. And of course, there's probably many that are unrecorded. And so falls are a serious deal and falls for old folks who already have comorbidities, you know, it's often a life ender. Once you fell, yeah. you know, I remember this lady fell when I was a kid, kid being like, I was 16. I saw her fall, some old lady who's 85 or something. And just like, we would have just popped up and walked down the street with nothing. Her skin just, you know, at that age, your skin just sloughs off. It's not the same somehow. And once you're at the hospital, then they can end with a UTI and, and they can just spiral downhill from there. So fall, falls are a big deal um, and they kill a lot of people. And when you have a whole populations of including these sorts of folks that are now forced to wear masks, not to mention kids and all, which is hurting their acrobatic capabilities, um, you're going to surely have a, a much larger increase in falls and deaths and injuries from falls, No, none of which is being measured. And most people just feel like, oh, I was an idiot and I fell, including Biden, you know, going up the stairs. I don't know if you saw him in the jet two or three months yeah. ago, he fell twice with his mask on. And we all would have trouble with a mask on, but he's, you know, he's not at the height, physical height of his life, right? This is this is causing special problems uh, for, for folks who are not, you know, 100% physically. Man, I, I'm clumsy normally, but uh, I don't know. May, I don't know if my frequency of clumsy moments have has even increased since I've been wearing masks. But I, I certainly have noticed myself like hitting my feet, maybe nor than more than normal lately. And now I, I had never made that connection till now that yeah, that mask is is actually blocking like my view of my legs, my view of like a lot of things in my normal periphery that I never I, I've never heard that angle of this before. So do, do you think that Biden actually did fall like partially because he's always wearing the, always wearing that mask? Well, yeah, these are tough. Tough, you know, that's just one sure. instance. It's not yeah, a scientific statement necessarily. But, but I, I, I certainly think it didn't help. Yeah. All right. Well, if you've been stumbling around, kicking your feet, falling all over like Joe Biden, you know what might help besides taking that mask off? What might help is some fine Italian coffee from our friends at Lorenzotti, Italy. You can find them over at Lorenzotti.coffee. That's L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-T-T-I.coffee. These guys are great for a number of reasons. One is that they deliver fine premium Italian coffees right to your door in these nice little tins. Another is that they are great supporters of this program, great libertarians. They've been supporting this show as sponsors uh, for well over a year now. So if you like this show and you like coffee, it's just a no-brainer to support one of our amazing sponsors. If that all wasn't enough, you can get 10% off your order by using discount code LIONS at checkout. So head over to Lorenzotti.coffee, check out all their fine premium Italian blends, choose one or two of your favorites, and use that discount code LIONS for 10% off your order at checkout. I want to get into um, this idea. You know, when I talk about masks out here in California, uh, um, like I said, almost everywhere I go, people are wearing a mask. doesn't matter if I'm walking alone outside, walking alone in a, in a trail. Most people around me are wearing masks, whether they're required to or not, uh, which tells me it pr might may likely very well and likely not change even when they do lift mask mandates here. But you go to other parts of the country. I mean, we were in Florida uh, a month or two ago and totally different. Uh, even when they were required, a lot of places you could tell didn't actually care. They had the sign up and you know, people around are, are looking at each other, not panicking that they don't have masks on. Completely different attitude towards it all. So what what is it in the human brain that causes these very different reactions to essentially the same, maybe not the same data necessarily, but the same, the same panic, the same fear that's being put out there, the same word, deadly, 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 over and over. What is it that makes certain populations, even certain populations, that seem to be congregated in certain in certain geographic areas react one way, whereas you can go to another area and they seem to be reacting in a completely different way. This is a, a common sort of question is, so, you know, what, why did some people, you know, sort of succumb to this mass hysteria and others, others uh, less so or not succumb to it? And, and you can talk about personality. There could be some person. I'm sure there's variabilities, variation with personalities. You might expect that those who are more academic or more intellectual could be more likely to avoid it, but you know, if anything, it seems like the opposite. But this is, you know, I'd like to one would like to really study this for sure. But I, I think at the end of the day, uh, the best hypothesis is is it it's just where you sat within the network when it happened. 
And whoever you are, the only reason that I escaped, you know, the mass hysteria, in my own opinion, is is that I've always been aloof and I've always lived my life to be aloof, actually. You know, as one of my principles that I taught my students was to be a good theorist, a good scientist, and iteratively come up with new ideas and new fields over time, you need to remain socially aloof. I don't, not socially aloof from friends, but like from those sort of academic communities. So you always feel aloof from any, both political communities as well as academic communities so that you are free to come up with, with new ideas and new fields and really make a big discovery. That kind of attitude, I've never been part of a politicized, polarized community. And that may have helped me stay, you know, in a different spot within the big network um, relative to some other people. But I think, I don't think I'm impervious. In the same spot that some of these other folks, I would have been, I would have had trusted, high reputation folks, whatever, 73 of them in various directions in different parts of society that I believed in. You know, often I was getting news about Israel from that, about whatever, news about uh, food from that person. But this time they're all saying the same damn thing about one damn thing. And, you know, over, so I'm getting the same, all these high reputation people are saying the same thing. I would be a leave it just as they did. And I think that, that uh, in the beginning, at least most of my libertarian folks that I followed online became super Karens. They were almost all of these supposed principles that they claimed to have nearly all of them were, were gone. A lot of the conservatives went, became super Karens and the left, you know, were also became super Karens. There's a lot of, a lot of people now on the left, like now Wolf, who's now on, on our side. And there's a lot of people on the left and a lot of communists that were on my side in the beginning. A lot of the communists were like, this is just stupid. You can't freeze. Even we know we can't freeze. You can't freeze an economy for God's sakes. You know, communists don't freeze economies. They, they got to keep it running in some other way. Cause like, there was a lot of people on my side was a big mixed bag of folks. Now, after another month or two, things started to polarize. It just overall, the left became care, switched to the sort of the panic side, you know, thinking that COVID is the disproportionately dangerous. And the, the Republicans became more on the, this is over, over exaggerated, but hardly, you know, monolithically it was became, but still the correlation was there. But that correlation, I think, was really peculiar to the United States. In, in, many other, in, in Israel, it wasn't that way. That was the opposite. In the UK, it's the opposite. In Sweden, it was the opposite. These things, I think that, and the reason that that shift happens is because once you have a, once you're part of a polarized community, if you're part of the left, and, you know, especially if you're an academic or journalist left, which is they're all 97, 98% of one view, once that, and exactly how it happens, but the social narrative slowly takes on board as part of their standard leftist narrative. In this case, it became, okay, now we're going to be anti-Trump and we feel like Trump might be slightly less Karen than we are. So we shall be here, hereby will be super, whatever. They just polarize to the opposite. So that, that standard narrative then got pulled in. And if you wanted to be, your reputation with this, those communities, you want to preserve it, then you have to start taking on the same beliefs as this narratives now has pulled that, you know, sort of, it's like two different narratives are joined like the opposite of a fork in Bitcoin. Like they've now become one. And if you want to maintain your currency, you're not, it's not like you're thinking I'm going to want to maintain my currency, but the human mind is such that you believe all these other people around you and they believe you because you're happy to, you're both high reputation in your communities. And so you all come to believe at the same time and all shift to believe that COVID is as, as serious as it is. And so that was hugely geographic, you know, the same political geographic variability that we find in the United States mostly predicts these differences that you're describing. And even in Florida, I've got a lot of friends who in some sub communities within Florida, everybody's still wearing masks, even outside, even those hundred degrees. And of course, in other places like Miami, when I go down there, no one's wearing them at these parties like they're four in the morning. You know, everybody's piled together in these clubs. It's great. But it, it, it's micro geographical variability, even within um, even even within Florida, for example. But I would bet right now that the main predictor of that is political orientation prior to um, prior to, to COVID. And it's largely you know, for no good reason. You know, it's just for political polarization reasons. It's just sort of these things ended up de- like as if there's some, as if they f- repel each other, like these no social narratives and had to take one and take the other and happened differently in different countries. So a lot of people think this has become a, you know, a left thing and a versus right thing. I don't think I, as I, in one of my science moment videos, I've argued, this is no longer left, right. Like in a typical Nolan diagram, or, or if you've seen uh, uh, economic rights and personal liberty. Sure. And then so the right ends up on the right and the left ends up. But it's not that way at all. Uh, right now, the entire COVID debate is really authoritarianism, which is sort of down at the bottom of this, this diagram versus freedom. Right, right. And up the side, sort of the top and bottom is all these former leftists, lots of libertarians still left in there, and a lot of people on the right in the United States, just proportionally on the right. But in other countries, you know, in Sweden, it's all these people from the left, formerly from the left. 
And at the bottom is a, is a mixed bag. So, so that's why we can see someone like uh, like Miami Wolf, who is is very much left, very much progressive, but she's always been very anti-authoritarian. So that's why she is someone who can kind of fall on this side of things now, because it's a it's a different sort of divide than left and right. It's more of the, the up and down authoritarianism versus freedom. Yeah, that's right. I want to dig into a little more about, I mean, like everybody, everybody listening to this libertarian podcast is against the lockdown. So I don't think we need to make a case for why lockdowns are bad, but I want to dig into a little more about maybe some things we don't necessarily touch on. I think libertarians often talk about more of the economic effects of lockdowns, um, you know, what they're going to do, what they're doing to businesses and this sort of thing. But I want to dig a little bit more into maybe like the cognitive effects of lockdowns on people, on certain types of people. I mean, some types of people are are more introverted and maybe they just love the lockdown. You know, maybe they're fine with it. They didn't like going to parties. They didn't like seeing people anyway. So no big deal. I'll hang out in my house for a year. But, you know, other types of people are very much the kind of people that really need to be around other people. They feed off the energy of other people. So what might the uh, some of the effects of the lockdowns be on on maybe that kind of person or maybe on the other kind of person, too, who maybe thinks they don't they want to be a shut in. But uh, in, in real life, when the lockdowns hit, um, maybe it really is affecting them in ways they don't even realize. Well, on that note, I'm coming in from the side at your question from the side. You know, we talked earlier about how how fear and panic is contagious. And this is the kind of thing that sort of it's disproportionately likely to create these sorts of mass hysterias and create this mass delusion, which sickens them. But if this was, if this had been fear of, um, I don't know, comets hitting the earth that are going to be, let's say basketball sized comets, or it was like, uh, 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 uh what are the, the cicadas, not cicadas, but the, the big swarms of things that eat all your crops are called, uh, uh um, locusts coming. Right. And you're trying to, def- you're all afraid of the locusts because you're going to get, then what we do in those circumstances is we band together socially. You know, we band together as a group and we organize, okay, how are we going to fight off the, the locusts or the comets? We cuddle together. So they're inherently social in some sense. The reaction is a really social one to defend ourselves. Pandem- fear of a pandemic, fear of infectiousness is entirely different. This is why it's fundamentally much more dangerous to society because when you end up with fear and hysteria, which is disproportionately likely when it's about infection and, and, and pandemic uh, in the first place to create this kind of fear, but it's not just fear about any old thing. It's, a, it's the fear about the, the most destructive thing that is for society because it, it makes every other human around you a potential enemy. Instead of banding together, we're all, we say, no, we, no one can be together. We all have to be, um, what was what's the thing? Um, we should band together t- separately. Some bullcrap lines they have in all the like things like let's work together apart, you know, some work together thing, right? six feet, six feet apart from each other. Yeah. And in this case, it's, you know, it could be 60 feet apart in all of your homes and don't see each other for a year. And if you do have to go out, but God forbid, then really stay six feet apart or really far. And, and for God's sakes, cover over your, your human identity and your emotional expressiveness. Everything that matters to human. So everything that matters to humans is, which is about all human social is cut. So disproportionately dangerous these these uh, fear of a pandemic because it just crushes everything that matters in society and of course our economies require humans physically interacting. Um, at the end of the day, there's a, a Zoom class of folks, but the real world underneath is just real people interacting in, in real space in real time, and that just you just can't have that. That's one angle of it. You know, another thing that's in, on the social side, and I, I haven't really thought it fully through, but it, it's made me appreciate bars and restaurants, uh, not just for the joy that I get in my own life, but I really have come to feel um, that they are a much more integral part of what a society is. And I'd like to be able to say that I've really worked out philosophically exactly how to think about this. But I think there's something, um, you know, the notion of if, you know, historically, evolutionarily, we would have all sat down as a tribe together, enjoyed food together. These are the times, this is exactly when the, the most social times that humans get along get together. And of course, in a bigger city, you're not, you know, you don't know everybody around you, but you just, for those that get it, you want to be there, not because you know all those folks, but you just like being near them. You like the white noise. You like feeling like you're part of this group. It pulls these cities, these diverse people together and makes them feel part of one community. And, uh, and, and so I think, I, I think a lot of folks have the attitude, these are just bars and restaurants and just, you know, people should just stop drinking their stupid beer fancy appetizers and that's i think that's completely misunderstanding go make your margarita at home and then shut up you know right yeah and that is missing the how important i mean even more generally somehow at least 
United States, which is a lot of the folks on the left who ended up for incidental reasons on the Karen side, let's say. But a lot, and it bugs the crap because these are people who, you know, they're very whole foods, they're organic, they, 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 they point to the right and they say the right is really narrow minded and they're kind of just, they're just really square and they don't really get the, they're, they're not holistic, they're not seeing the big picture. But every single aspect about all of this has been the most square kind of thinking nerd, you know, non socially intelligent person. You know, all of the arguments are completely of zero breadth, you know, like the idea that someone can, just say, oh, we will just cover up their only two uh, breathing holes and their human identity and all their emotional expressions and not have any, the same sorts of people who supposedly have this sort of well-rounded, organic kind of holistic thinking about things have, are not even bringing any of that to the table, right? When it comes to the, should it be the folks that are the more artsy types to say, yeah, there's a lot more to life, right. including, you know, alcohol and social, social life. And, but somehow all of that was just destroyed in one fell swoop. And it's, it's a bit of a mystery to me why, you know, none of that matters now. Sure, I mean, that, that's the one thing I one thing I noticed. I mean, we I was in New York City about two months ago for a couple of days, and it used to be I, I'm from the East Coast. It used to be one of my favorite places to go and just spend a night or two just for that energy. It was all that was what, it was not about seeing the Statue of Liberty to me. It was always about oh. just feeling the energy of the people there, being in these bars till four in the morning, getting into these random conversations, feeling a, a temporary part of this like newfound community, and then leaving. Uh, but I mean, now I go there. I mean, the city's dead. I mean, it, this is yeah. even maybe it's changed. Changing, hopefully changing this summer, but uh, I don't know. Again, like we said, a lot of this is cultural, so it's hard to say. Even if they lift lift the mandates and, and what have you and lift the curfews, are people going to be flooding back out like they used to? Or are they going to you know, stand socially distanced in the street with, with the masks on? I mean, that, that's what I wonder because, because I mean, it, it just it, the city was completely dead when I was there. I mean, yeah. at 10 p.m., it's dead. There's nothing going on. There's no interaction. There's no more community. It, and it's just one of the saddest things I've, I've ever seen, just spending uh, you know just a weekend there and realizing, wow, wow this this place that used to be such a vibrant vibrant place is just completely dead now yeah yeah all right guys well you know what is still a vibrant place a vibrant place for liberty that is stopping by with our friends nate and charlie every single day monday through friday over on good morning liberty that's right if you thought you were impressed by lions of liberty churning out three episodes per week well guess what at Good Morning Liberty, you got not three guys like you do here. You got two guys doing it five days a week. Do the math there. It's impressive. I'm impressed. Nate and Charlie have very unique backgrounds. They both come from the healthcare industry where they work now, and they also have backgrounds in the music industry. So they definitely have some really unique perspectives on the ideas of liberty. And again, they do it five freaking days a week. So if you are just thirsting for more liberty content, for more great analysis of the news through the perspective of liberty, it's going to be hard-pressed to do better than subscribing to to Good Morning Liberty. Don't forget to check them out on your favorite podcatcher or head to their website, the URL that I love so much. That is BernieLies.com. One thing I want to uh, uh, you know, address before we wrap up here, Mark, is, you know, we looked at a lot of the problems and a lot of where this comes from in terms of, uh, you know, the cognitive sense and how our brain functions. But I'm wondering where you think this goes from here, where this polarization goes from here, especially now with the push for vaccines and how we're already seeing talk of, you know, vaccine sections at sports stadiums, vaccine passports or people at, at their jobs being allowed to take their masks off, but only if they're vaccinated with which I'm just seeing a further divide here, especially when we now are going to maybe have visual representation of who has the vaccine and who isn't, who's, who's, you know, clean and quote unquote dirty. Where do you see all this heading? You know, I call it the great mask switcheroo that you know, back in April or whatever, I was described like what, once the vaccines come, that's not going to be enough. You know, vaccines aren't going to make the difference because it doesn't help. It helps biologically. Let's suppose they work as well as people think they do, which of course is a, a whole complicated story there. Um, it doesn't work psychologically because if I'm out in public uh, I, uh, no one, I can't signal the fact that I have a vaccine. And of course, the way that people fax signals, they, they put little logos on their avatars on Facebook. They, mm -hmm. they talk about it all the time. They, oh, I got a vaccine. What kind of vaccine do you do? They're starting to signal it. They want to signal, conspicuously signal that they're clean because they'd like to be, they're part of the clean club. This is, these are kind of all, once you're part of these social narratives, you want to be part of you, your integrity, your reputation is due to your belief in, within the narrative of, of what your position on COVID is. I, I've even noticed out here, maybe it's just a part of the climate too, but you know, people that are recently vaccinated all seem to wear the sleeveless shirts. So we, so we make sure that I can see that they just got the jab there. Right. Now, and they're still probably not going to take their mask off usually though, until vaccine passports or some sufficiently 
conspicuous signals there to replace us. If they don't have those conspicuous signals, the best conspicuous signal for them would be that I'm in a restaurant and I'm only can be here by virtue of me having a vaccine. Then they don't need a mask. They don't need anything. They can stop with all the signaling because they get the perfect signal. I'm here and I'm living a normal life and the unclean are not allowed in it. That's the kind of signal that they want. Now, luckily, the United States has enough federalism still up and running, functioning, that there's been at least three or four states I haven't kept track that have made it illegal statewide, uh, passed a bill to even have vaccine passports. Um, and there's, there's a, and there's, I'm hoping that's uh, enough of a crack that's going to be pushing to, to potentially push enough other states to do that, that we can um, head, this, head, head this off. Others, so I don't know what's going to happen in the United States overall by virtue of that dynamic, but I have more optimism here than I do a lot of these other countries like Canada and aspects of uh, facets of Europe and UK, where it's really there's there's no federalism to speak of, and uh, I would imagine that they're they're going to be headed down that path pretty fast. So do you think there will be kind of sections of the country like um, I'm sure where I live right now is one of them where there you will see this division more so because there is more of that concern. You will see the separation of the vaxxed and, and unvaxxed or what have you, uh, whereas other areas that didn't have that same concern, maybe the same areas where I go now and people aren't wearing masks, you're not going to even see that that much of that division. Yeah, I, I, certainly that's what we see already. And so I, I would love to be able to say that people will just look at you know, the open free areas of uh, like Florida and, and Columbus has always been good. Columbus, Ohio, by the way, it's compared to other places. And they'll use that as an example. I don't think it works that way. They are, once you're part of these narratives, you are not staying there. You're not, it's not like they're saying, oh, I don't want to admit being wrong. It's not, that's not it at all. That's one way to sort of anthropomorphize it. No, these social narratives really believe they're right. When you're in a social narrative, you really believe that those folks are unclean or being dangerous and haven't been good. And to the extent that they, it's going to be hard. So how, so it's not just about getting people to back down who know that they're wrong, that they're wrong. They really don't know that they're wrong. Um, they really believe that they're right and that we've been irresponsible and we got lucky or, and they still believe Sweden is like a disaster. That's they really believe that Sweden has been a disaster. I know people that think Florida is a disaster and Texas yeah. is our disasters right now for no reason other than they were told they were going to be. And that's the narrative. So of course that's the truth. Yeah. And it's hard to wrap your mind around it, but one of the first rules of this, and it's very hard for a lot of the folks that are on my side, is that 99% of the time, believe you should believe that they believe what they say. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for humans to do that. You see the side, and there's a lot of conspiracy stuff that comes true. Like a lot of the stuff is like conspiracy theory stuff, but it doesn't mean that it's due to a conspiracy. It doesn't mean that there's someone ahead of time who designed this and is doing this on purpose. Um, but you can end up with conspiracy-like design-like behavior at the level of these large massive masses that are emergent effects that don't need a particular conspirator to explain them. This is exactly why natural selection is really hard to understand. You get all of the brilliant design of the, you know, around us, and there's no designer, right? That's what makes natural selection in Darwin so, you know, such a brilliant discovery. But it's also why, you know, there forever will be, you know, creationists and, intell and, and you know, intelligent design folks, because it's really hard to wrap your mind around. And same thing for these sorts of events. So that's what, you know, FreeX, this FreeX.group, this new research institute by my colleague, Tim Barber, and I is really trying to understand based on these emotional expressions and understanding what, what really expression is all about, free expression, how we're betting and betting reputation and how reputations rise and fall on these social networks, trying to expand that so we can understand these sorts of emergent effects, what went right, how can you, how can you understand uh, the networks of free expression, reputation networks, so that we can make sure these sorts of things don't happen. And if they do happen, how can we understand, let's say, whether they're getting better, can you guide them to become, you know, to get better, to un, 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 unravel in some sense. So trying to get a 21st century expression for sort of from a physics, math, computational kind of psychological sense, you know, all together in one. That's really what this FreeX group uh, research institute is about, trying to, uh, you know, motivated really by this last 15 wouldn't have had this research direction. It's a natural one, but I often move on to completely different stuff. But right now, the world got wrecked so quickly. You know, climate change never motivated me to work on it. And it was, you know, wokeness never motivated. Me. It was all, you know, it's a slow drag on society. It's sort of messing things up, but it's just ridiculous. And, and it's obviously ridiculous. And it's wearing its ridiculous on its, its, on its sleeve in some sense. But in this case, there was no ignoring it. You know, with, in two weeks, the world was just turned upside down. So I'm, I'm kind of motivated at this stage of my life to see if, if I can, you know, have a better understanding for mass hysteria, tyranny, these sorts of massive, massive events, um, which will, are always going to be, we're always going to be sub. Too, because we're always going to be just as human 1.0 as we are right, today. Right.
Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining me. I, I know you got to get going. Um, I, I was, I've been told for, for a year or a year or maybe 15 months now that to follow the science. So I wanted to bring on someone that had an idea about science when it comes to this actual mass hysteria, because that is to me what is far more concerning than the physical virus itself is the hysteria surrounding it and the reactions to it. So I'm glad we could dig into that together here today. Uh, before I let you go, of course, feel free. You mentioned FreeX. Uh, I know you're reactive on YouTube and Twitter as well. Feel free to plug away on anything else you'd like to mention. Yeah, I mean, catch up to me is just Mark Changizi at Twitter is sort of the main so the action is. And then uh, the science moment, uh, my science moment at, at YouTube would be a great place for you to, to find me. All right, Mark Changizi, thank you so much for joining me today. Keep up the great work. I know you'll be out there tweeting and roaring away about this stuff. Uh, so please do uh, give Mark a follow on Twitter. Keep up the great work, Mark. Keep on roaring. Glad to be here. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Changizi. That's going to do it for this week. Don't forget to tune in to Brian every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and just ridiculous takes on liberty over on electric liberty land while john odermatt wraps things up with his search his quest to help others find freedom and to share their stories over on finding freedom you get all three of these shows for the price of one that price is free all you gotta do is smack that subscribe button to hear us roar three days per week and if that's just not enough for you if you can't get enough of the lions of liberty there's a couple things you can do you can again support us on patreon patreon.com slash lions of liberty for all sorts of bonus content including live streams of a lot of the episodes i do like i did with last week's debate with tho bishop and dave smith pride members got to see and comment on that before anybody else. And if you want to get a glimpse of what we are doing outside of the Libertyverse, you're going to want to do a couple things. You're going to subscribe to the Second Print Comics podcast that is hosted by myself and our friend Remzo Martinez from the We Are Libertarians Network, where we take a weekly look at the comic book characters, stories, events, etc. that influence our fanhood. We have an absolute blast doing that show. And if you enjoy the work we do in the podcasting space, even if you think you're not a fan of comics and that sort of thing, and if you're not, I don't know what kind of person you are, but... You got to check out the Second Print Comics podcast. And of course, you have Brian, Odie, and Rico now each and every week on The Boring Podcast, formerly Bravo and Beer, now The Boring Podcast. So do check out all the work we're doing out there, whether it's here in the Liberty Sphere or out there in the pop culture verse. Either way, we're going to be here roaring at you each and every week. So until next time, my friends. Live long and live free. 